0: and assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. And to lay a pretension to me, deny
1: what I think is wrong, arguably, I think it's wrong. We've to have free
2: and uncorrupted
0: communication. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. But, you know, we're here for Cedric and not for for me, and I thank Otis for his wonderful presentation. Uh, I'm left with the task of introducing Cedric, but before I do that, I would like to thank the organizer of this conference, and particularly the students. Uh, this morning, the Chancellor came out and made a big speech and said, well, we thank the students, we thank the faculty and whatever. But everything that was done and everything that was organized and really uh, the realization of this conference is essentially due to the students. And so <clears throat> we have to give to Caesar what goes back to Caesar. And so, I would like to thank, well, Caesar or or his associates, right? <laughs> and so uh, I would like to thank Ilya, Françoise, Otis, Marisa Marquez, H.Q., and Tiffany. I didn't give their family name because you know them all. And so, deep, 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 deep to the bottom of our heart, I really need to thank you for what you did because it's the first time that I've seen a conference, or a symposium, or whatever you want to call it, that involved. Uh, such, a, many, uh, such a, a group of people and that shows so much care and so much love and so much unity that it's amazing. I'm almost speechless, okay? So thanks again for what you have done. <clears throat> On my... Uh, I wrote everything down because I was afraid that I would forget a few words and whatever, And since I wrote it down, it's going to be even worse than before. The reason is that, you know, the problem of graphism and uh, phonetic realization in a different language. So when I read it, it might sound a little bit like uh, Inspector Clouseau. But I will do my best to make it pass as, uh, as, as, as intelligible as possible. And I was supposed to thank everybody else, so I thank the chancellor, the dean, but mainly I have to say my heart is going to the students. And so before uh, everything I've been said about Cedric, and I think coming out of the at the end of the day, it's really redundant for me to repeat what I've been said before the scholarship. The, uh, the book that he published and whatever. And so what I wanted to do is to, to, to uh, take you with me into the trajectory that brought me in to the life of Cedric and how Cedric came into our lives in Santa Barbara and in a sense changed our lives. Okay? And so there's so much to be said in the, few, in the 45 minutes that you allotted me. <laughs> that uh, <clears throat> I'm going to have to simplify the whole thing, okay? And so in 1979, uh, Cedric arrived in Santa Barbara from Binghamton New York, and the way I say it, I hope you remember where it is, in New York, in New York where he had been chair of the Afro-American Studies Department. My colleague and I were very much impressed by the glowing nature of his letters of recommendation and by his already impressive curriculum vitae. All the later praised him for yaradi yarada, his dedication to excellence, his integrity, his unfettered leadership, his indefatigable energy, and so and so on and so on. And the people on the committee were looking at me and saying, "Hmm." Is that really true? (laughs) And so I was trying to convince them that it must be true. It must be true because the people that had written letters were people of good reputation. But you have to understand that I was at a time a very junior faculty in the midst of a very old conservative administrative committee uh, which looked with great suspicion at those glowing letters in support of what they considered to be a radical black candidate. Well, after much discussions, really, and much coercions, and in dire need of a director, the, reluctantly, the faculty, this, this kind of uh, elitist faculty at the time from the department like History and so on, uh, reluctantly bit the bullet and offered him the position, a position that I suppose he accepted <laughs> with reservation because I remember him coming to visit us and he didn't look that much enthusiastic at the beginning. But I suppose he understood our position and he joined us. And so little did they know uh, that for once the author of those glowing letters were right. and Dr. Robinson was more than well equipped to fix the ills of a Center for Black Studies, uh, a unit which had suffered the neglect of the administration and the ignominy of a few imposters uh, in our communities. And so committed and eager to start, Cedric immediately implemented a series of programs made to enhance our ties with the various black community agencies in town, in the state, and in the nations. And for example, uh, to increase the availability and qualifications of black faculty and their exposure to our university, he suggested the recruitment effort, he suggested a recruitment effort based on a program of faculty exchange with southern black institution, a program which later had to expand to exchange students and of faculty collaborative research project. He also attracted a series of outstanding budding affiliate scholars who after completing their doctorate grade here at UCSB under his guidance went a way, unfortunately, to fill the needs of other institutions, and I know a few of you are here tonight, okay? So to 11 students scholarly consciousness and develop their analytical skills, he instituted a system of mentorship and summer work program involving high school and university students in departmental and faculty research projects. He gave new space in the center to encourage interdisciplinary collaborative research and launched black studies supported on a programme. Essentially, Cedric brought back the community to the black studies and make us all and make us understand the need for collaborations and cooperation in the enterprise in the enterprise of teaching black studies. So, a whirlwind of ideas and activity, which meshed perfectly with our mission and our goal, swiftly took place. And Professor Robinson quickly established himself as the leading voice, radical voice, on our campus in Santa Barbara. Faithful to his social commitment, uh, he, if not initiated, was at least closely associated with his spouse, Elizabeth Robinson, in the creation of a local information program, offering an alternative view on various world events. The Third World News World Review, sorry, the Third World News Review as it was still and is still called, became the longest-running program on the public access station ComTV Channel 17 in Santa Barbara. I have to mention that because this is a program that at least served a need in our community, and there's not a day. We thought at the beginning that there would be five listeners, my wife, his (laughs) spouse, and a few others, but we discovered that the scope of uh, of that program went beyond what was uh, anticipated. And there's not a day that passed when people stopped us and say that it is solely needed in the community. It is a program that brings the radical ideas of Cedric, our views on Third World, our interpretation of the news, and at least a defense of a view that is not supported in the normal media and brings some kind of intelligent vision to the Santa Barbara uh, uh, news channels. And so Dr. Robinson remained in the center of Black Studies until 1987 and was then integrated into the political science department where he was able to work more closely with graduate students in his main field of interest. He swiftly became chair of that department and almost immediately found himself in a heap of trouble (laughs) for questioning and exposing the covert presence and recruiting activities of CIA agents in his classroom and on our campus. That was a tradition before Cedric to have these CIA agents running around and trying to recruit students, and Cedric uh, exposed their activities, and then, like you said, the proverbial excrement hit the ventilators, okay? <laughs> so if from start, I was a strong supporter of Cedric because I believed in the man and his ideology. I was by now an unconditional Robinsonians, I know the word was used, uh, I still am a, a Robinsonian, I still believe in the power of the individual to change the whole. So far from the edulcorated edu- and mundane speeches of a few of our academic minstrels, and they would know who they are, okay? Cedric Voice, yes they are, I'm sorry, but we have to recognize them for what they are, Okay. Uh, Cedric's voice was always logical, uncompromising, and above all, fundamentally true. It was essentially refreshing and rewarding to be the colleague of someone who had such an astute social consciousness and dedication, and such a skill at making order out of chaos. His vision and ambition also dovetailed perfectly with the imperative mandate that courageous black and Chicano students had anointed us with in 1967. Namely, the creation of an academic department whose mission was to address the cultural amnesia and historical aphasia which dominated the curriculum of most universities at that time, the development of a department ready and able to challenge universal knowledge without compromise. I also remember a stylish effort of. Uh, effort. Uh, I also remember his tireless support of students who had decided to challenge the institution and had demanded the inclusion of an entirely new requirement, the ethnic studies requirement. His support to the hunger strike that followed was pivotal, and his speeches in support of the ethnic studies requirement were essential. I remember the speech he made to the Academic Senate when he, re- he responded to those defending the primacy of Western Civilization by telling them that Western Civilization is neither. Okay. <laughs> His demonstration was brilliant. His argumentation was so impeccable that even the most reti- reticent faculty had to concede. Oh yes, there were the days when students and faculty activists were united in one goal. Days when students' opinions were encouraged and not muffled, and when student decency was respected and not threatened. And the time they are changing. <clears throat> that, I tried, okay? <laughs> And so time passed swiftly, and four years later, it was time for Cedric to come home. And in 1993, Cedric joined our department and was appointed chair. He remained in the position until 1999. As chair of the department, Cedric maintained his continual attention to faculty, staff, and student welfare, and created a constructive and nurturing atmosphere for all. He hired more scholars and brought to our department more uh, other Oh, sorry. and brought to our department, among other things, reviews that help us develop our, and, and publish our scholarly work. Social identity as an example, it's a review that stayed with the department and uh, helped us uh, publish some of our work that all the people didn't want to accept. His presence on the editorial board of the review, race and class, consolidated our image and gave us direct access to a plethora of new possibilities. Remarkably, his administrative effort did not, in a way, dampen his scholarly achievement and production, for he still managed to produce a steady flow of highly acclaimed publication. I'm almost there. Unfettered by his many duties and responsibilities, Cedric Robinson succeeded in being a very efficient, caring, and dedicated chairperson and a wonderful, nurturing colleague. His expertise in the field of black studies, political science, philosophy, history, cinema, cultural studies, as well as impressive and significant scholarly achievement made him a valuable participant and an authoritative referee. He became an intellectual beacon on our campus, beacon, yeah, not beacon, as well as (laughs) nationally and abroad. Now, his influential voice in academia successfully exploded the hegemonic attempt at controlling knowledge, its expression, and its mean of production, but you know all that since that's a word that came out further uh, since yesterday. And as we have seen today, Professor Robinson's visionary and scholarly accomplishment have deeply influenced the field of social science validated our discipline, and brought fame to our department, our discipline, and our our university. His his effort at deconstructing the West and at emancipating what has been restrained and obfuscated, coupled with his dedication to a morally just world, have given impetus to new tradition, and have created contemporary movement. Dr. Robinson has always approached black issues in the context of their international reality thus underlining the coherent universality of black radical ideology. Professor Cedric Robinson is I believe one of the most influential thinkers of our time. He is certainly the major authority and on history and philosophy of Black Liberation Movement in the Black Diaspora. It is therefore my pleasure to present to you this truly remarkable visionary scholar whose work deeply influenced an entire generation of students, as you can see, scholars and activists, a man from whom I have the greatest admiration and the deepest respect, my colleague, my friend, Professor Cedric Robinson.
2: you know that there will be an exam tomorrow. (laughs) I have um, been deeply moved by uh, not merely these last two days but um, just being next to and near to and overhearing the extraordinary work and efforts and thinking of, uh, thank you, of these uh, former graduate students who uh, imagined this symposium, realized this symposium, organized this symposium. One of them Uh, Helen Kwan who is known as HQ whenever she sends me emails I always try and respond in the spirit that they're sent so very often I write Genghis Kwan (laughs) but HQ and Tiffany and Mm. (laughs) and Francois and Maricela and Rovan and Travis and Cynthia Um... I am you so I find it difficult to To take credit for your being me When I first came to Santa Barbara In 1979 And met Girard I found myself in uh, the presence Of a, of a man whose uh, Generosity uh, is boundless, whose intelligence, whose discipline, and whose love for the work and love for the people is fathomless. So for me, it was quite uh, easy to be his friend. We had one argument. I think that was the first month... (laughs) First month that uh, we were working together, and I stormed down because the center was on the third floor? Fourth floor. The center was on the fourth floor, and the department was on the third floor, so I stormed down to confront Gerard, because after all, he was a mulatto. So I thought I had an advantage. But uh but uh, he stole that away from me by reminding me that my daughter is a mulatto. <laughs> so I had to change tactics. Tonight, I want to uh, s- spend a little time um, first reiterating uh, gerard 's and otis 's remarks about um, uh, the extraordinary organizers of this this meeting. Then I want to um, make one small comment that I think um, Uh, Santiago de, Santiago, Valle will, will bear me out um, all this week uh, since Tuesday uh, some of us have been uh, distressed by the events of the of the second and if I recall correctly Santiago was there something that Cabral said that tell no lies and claim no easy victories and Kerry was a lie for us and he was an easy victory and uh, we now know I think with the clarity that we didn't know on Monday uh, that we have work to do we can't expect anybody else to do that work we have work to do And the urgency of that work um, is real. Um, So we must refrain from telling ourselves lies uh, that the electoral system can address uh, the injustice in this society. And then we can leave it to somebody else Someone who is flawed Someone who is inadequate Someone who has um, uh, A flexible Moral uh, Structure To do What we think Has to be done And so for this next four years um, It behooves all of us To work very hard And do not shy away from taking it on yourself Um, and some of you have already begun to think about the ways in which you want to uh, address those questions I have been asking uh, some of you to think about uh, putting together a black and brown book on the theft of the vote in 2000 and 2004 Um, I think that would be the beginnings of perhaps a, an important manual for what we want to do over the next three or four years. But in any case, um, we must think much more seriously than an electoral campaign allows us to about the task in front of us. And um, for those in my generation... Um, We got caught napping. We thought um, that much of what we had addressed was no longer possible to occur again. Um, And it's not happening again in the sense of historical cycles or repetitions, but it is something entirely new. So American society is not something most of us recognize but we have to come to a recognition of it in order to improve these uh, poor people. I was looking at a research study done by the PIPA organization at the University of Maryland. Some of you saw the study report uh, which came out on October 13th. PIPA is the program in international policy attitudes. And they looked at Bush supporters and Kerry supporters and um, asked themselves, um, or asked these supporters to identify certain constructions of the events in Iraq and they found an extraordinary ignorance in the the public at large which complemented the research they had published in the Political Science Quarterly earlier this year when they'd asked 3,000 or more respondents um, what sources of news they had and 80% of them said electronic news and then asked them which news sources they paid closest attention to and tried to determine um, were the misperceptions on Iraq with respect to the world's support of American policy the connection with Al-Qaeda and weapons of mass destruction they found that 80% of those who saw Fox reported Fox as their principal news source shared one of these misperceptions but the next cluster I remember it at 71 but Elizabeth remembers it at 77%. The next cluster of false beliefs was in the audience of CBS. And then ABC, NBC. Not much better, but slightly better. That is, there has been a... Homogenization, which we can all anticipate, we can all report about, and to some degree explain, um, which is cocoon the American public in this fantasy world that um, Kerry alluded to, um, but to which he was also a subscriber. I remember seeing those first ten minutes of Fahrenheit 9/11, when the Black Caucus and others went to the Senate. To beg, plead for reconsideration of this false election. And their petition required one senator, and Wellstone was in the Senate, and Kerry was in the Senate, and Edwards was in the Senate, and Kennedy was in the Senate, and they got no signature. Not one. They only needed one, they got nothing. That was 2001. So, as I said, much of what we have engaged in in 2004, we were telling ourselves lies. We must move on from that. I want to share with you some work that I've been doing recently. Uh, there have been some allusions to it earlier today. Um, and as to do with the media, but with an earlier media. That is, with films and the construction of race uh, in American society, early American films from the late 19th century and probably up to World War II. But as someone indicated, I have no idea where this book's (laughs) going to end, but there we go. But let me set the stage by a series of snapshots. Some of you recall that in 1943 or 44 a major race study funded by the Carnegie Corporation uh, was published under the imprimatur of Gunnar Murdoch. Hmm? Yes. And earlier this year um, because this was the 60th I think anniversary of it uh, I was asked to um, appear on a panel dealing with Ralph Bunch and while doing some of the work in preparatory for that paper I came across um, perhaps the most critical figure in the inspiration of the Carnegie Commission to do the study his name was Newton Baker, and Newton Baker had been the Secretary of War during World War I, and now he was, a, he was on the board of the Carnegie Corporation. And in 1935, he had the audacity to challenge the, the corporation's now two-decade-old policy of providing some small funds to Negro colleges. He thought the money could be used better. And so he suggested that a uh, new study be made of Negro needs. And in December of '35, he wrote to the head of the corporation, F.P. Keppel, these remarks... I think anybody who has read Anthony Adverse will share my feeling of unlimited amazement at the courage of the white people in this country who received the slaves from slave ships and undertook to make useful laborers of them. How many white civilizations could have dared To receive so many wild savages who were practically uncaged animals and spread them around over their farms in contact with their own families passes human comprehension. What has been done for the Negro in a hundred years is an unparalleled achievement and nothing but a theoretical democratic impatience can make us critical of it. Though, of course, much more remains to be done That was the inspiration for an American dilemma right? This was the same man who had presided over the court-martials of black soldiers in World War I This was the same man who had signed off on the IQ test of the U.S. military in World War I he was the same man who had participated with others in Wilson's, Woodrow Wilson's cabinet, people like Secretary William McAdoo, Treasurer Secretary, Postmaster General Albert Burles- Burleson, John Skelton Williams, the controller of the currency, who were the architects of the segregation of the U.S. government, Washington, D.C. How many white civilizations could have dared to receive so many wild savages? All right. Now, let me get to the meat of my subject. Two more snapshots will constitute the bulk of my remarks. As I've interrogated the history of the development of the American film industry from the beginnings in the late 19th century. Until the early 20th century, it became clear to me that certain factions of capital were gaining control of film industry, and that by the early 1900s, the most powerful of the film industries called mutoscope or biograph or uh, something of that sort, uh, were essentially creatures of factions of American capital. So, uh, when I began to look for some connection between the construction of race in American film in this era and American capital, it became obvious that I wasn't looking at uh, something that was broad, uh, ambiguous, but something that was very deliberate. So, take my word for it, in the book that I'm working on now, I have identified certain elements of... uh, of American capital uh, with the two most important mechanisms of mass culture at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. The world's fairs, on one hand, 1876 in in Philadelphia, 1893 in Chicago, 1904 in St. Louis— World's fairs and regional fairs that, by 1916, 100 million people had come to see. That was equal to the population of the country. Some people went more than once, of course, which (laughs) explains. And some people came from out of the country. But let's 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 be uh, 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 fair. Uh, A substantial uh, majority of the American population. Um, went to the World's Fairs or uh, uh, received uh, the ideas, the images, the icons of the World's Fair as they were disseminated uh, later on. So, take my word for it that American railroads were a critical element of it, And that race as it related to the railway industry had something to do with uh, the use of convict labor in the 1880s and 1890s to do everything in terms of uh, providing the infrastructure of this enormous growth of railroads from the 1860s and 70s uh, particularly 1870s through the 1890s the industry of course was eminently corrupt and so by 1897 um, the ICC had come into being um, and though the railroad industry still seemed to exist as palpably and as realistically as you might think Wonder Bread exists right? but Wonder Bread is a subsidiary of it and all right. So that though the trucks still pass by us With that wonderfully bleached white dough bread Exposed in these colorful uh, portraits on the side of the trucks um, The corporation doesn't exist All right, It's a thing of the past It is uh, someone else's corporation masquerading as the wonderful bread All right. The first moment I want to draw your attention to has to do with uh, not the significations and representation of blacks, but the signification and representations of Mexican and Mexican-Americans. Silent era American films. I've written, as one might suppose, the synergy between American capital and the racial representations displayed in American silent movies extended beyond the domestic sphere. Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, too, were signified by chromatic categories determined by the binary set of black and white. As the second largest national minority of color, Mexican-Americans had both a social presence and some significance in the film consumption for instance of particular interest here Mexican laborers comprised some 70% of the rail workers in Texas and the western railroads and were being recruited as mine workers in Arizona but of far greater significance for William Randolph Hearst John D. Rockefeller and the Guggenheims Mexico itself was a potentially lucrative site for investment and exploitation and further territorial appropriation. Hearst, for example, owned the huge hacienda of Babicora in Chihuahua, and in 1912 had urged the Taft administration to support the counter-revolution led by Pascual Orozco Jr. against Francisco Madero's government. Frustrated on that score, during the Wilson administration, Hearst chose different tactics. A specialist in Mexican film, Carlos Mora, he sometimes calls himself Carl, reports that, quote, in 1915, William Randolph Hearst helped to finance a 15-part serial entitled Patria. The film depicted a Japanese-Mexican invasion of the United States, and clearly was designed to capitalize on the nervousness many Americans felt over revolution in Mexico, end quote, concerned with u s relations with the Japanese but not with Mexico. Wilson requested that the popular cereal be withdrawn from distribution in the meantime. Hearst's papers and others continue to link revolutionary Mexico with German, Russian, and Japanese plans to invade the United States. The social base of the peasant-dominated 1910 revolution was the largest threat to American capital. Consequently, it is understandable if the film industry distinguished between a white, virtuous, Mexican aristocracy and a darker, villainous peasantry. In short, the greaser... The mestizo peasant became a nigger. For certain revolutionary upheavals in Mexico, for certain revolutionary upheavals in Mexico invited color coding. In the 1810 independence movement, Afro-Mexicans worked the hot lowlands south of Mexico City and proved to be a critical and most persistent social base of the revolutionaries. Mulatto leaders like Vicente Guerrero and Jose Maria Morelos y Pavón had been spawned in that struggle. In 1910, dark skinned southern peasants, for example, Emilio Zapata and Morelos, joined with, uh, excuse me, in 1910, dark skinned mestizos and Indians in the northern states, for example, Chihuahua, joined with similarly the dark skinned southern peasants, Zapata and Morelos to overthrow the dictatorial state headed by Don Porfirio Diaz. In American films, light-skinned Mexicans like Antonio Moreno, Ramón Navarro, Gilbert Roland, whose name was really Luis Antonio Damaso de Alonso, Dolores Del Rio, whose real name was Lolita, Dolores Martínez Ansuzolo y López Negrete, and Lupe Vélez you know, whose real name was something else too <laughs> they were honored with honorary they were accorded honorary white identities in 1978 Dolores de Rio informed one author quote that skin tone was very important then and Spanish speaking actors in Hollywood fell into two categories if light skinned they could play any nationality including American Dark-skinned actors were fated to play servants or appear as villains. I wanted to do a little, I wanted to show you a movie, but This was a um, a portrait from Elizabeth Salas' book, Sodaderas, um, and it shows an Afro-Americana woman um, who was uh, one of the sodaderas of the 1910 revolution. So when Dolores de Rio tells us that uh, uh, there were two kinds of Of um, casting in Hollywood one for light-skinned Mexicans and one for dark-skinned Mexicans Uh, she is once again alerting us to uh, the kind of color code that was employed not merely with blacks but with Mexicans as well and others so uh, on the other end of the spectrum from white, Mexican and Mexican-American players displaying Indian mestizo or even black features, remain largely unrecognized, sunk into the anonymity of the nigger greaser. Hadley Garcia, who has written a book on um, Hispanic Hollywood, can be quoted as saying, even when less than vile, the greaser image subjected Hispanics to ridicule. Almost invariably, he was an idiotic competent, incompetent on top of being a ruthless villain whose vices outstripped those of paler movie villains. The depressing greaser phenomenon was abetted by such hits as The Greaser's Gauntlet, which was released in 1908, The Girl and the Greaser, 1930, 13, The Greaser's Revenge, 1914, Bronco Billy and the Greaser, 1914, and The Greaser, 1914. So, the reason I'm citing this material is to suggest to you that the racial regime being refitted at the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century, had a certain multiplicity to it, and that multiplicity would encompass uh, Latin Americans, Hispanics, Mexicans, what have you, it would encompass... Japanese and Chinese it would encompass Filipinos, it would encompass Jews and it would encompass uh, b- blacks. The next moment I want to tr- ad- to uh, ask you to look at with me has to do with blacks because the differentiation between blacks was critical. I believe that in the silent era there emerged uh, something I call the mulatto genre and the mulatto genre were films which displayed uh, the bestiality, the unnaturalness the freakish nature of mulattoes the best known of those is of course Birth of a Nation in 1915 where the two principal dark-skinned Villains Lydia Brown And Silas Lynch Are both mulattoes. I haven't got time to Rehearse that film with you It's been seen many times Most of you are familiar with it So let me take you to uh, That was February 1915 When Birth of a Nation was released in Los Angeles And then in, um, in, in March in New York And then took the country by storm Um but let me suggest this possibility to you. I have spent seven or eight pages here discussing the emergence of a, a black petty bourgeoisie, a black petty bourgeoisie in the late 19th and early 20th century, which was more and more, more and more, uh, paraded in colored terms as uh, light-skinned black people, and out of that cluster came a renegade faction, a radical faction, a faction which ranged from the club women uh, uh, of the 1890s uh, to the emergence of the Niagara and NAACP uh, movements in the early 20th century. That there was a great deal of attention being paid to this black petty bourgeoisie in the non-black world. In fact, Du Bois had published an article on his own class W. B. Du Bois had published an article on his own class In 1901 in the New York Times A long description of the habits of The black petty bourgeoisie in New York City This black petty bourgeoisie Had produced a renegade faction A faction, one of which was um, Terribly Uh, prone to and sympathetic to socialism and Du Bois was one of those figures as some of you know but from 1913 through 1920 the most powerful studios in the country produced a parade of films about the mulatto and uh, though there was some contest in 1915, between the horror of uh, the mulatto and mulatto as described in Birth of a Nation, uh, in, after 1915, after 1915, uh, the contest was, was ended. So I want to describe to you um, some of the constructions of the mulatto mulatto found in uh, this period. What I'm showing you now is the top of the transparency. It's a page from, I think, Thomas Cripps' book. And it shows uh, the mulatto impersonated by George Seligman uh, in brown face um, attacking Lillian Gish. Um, And Cripps is written, Here Silas Lynch covets Elsie Stoneman as a sexual symbol of his new arrogant powers. Um, But suffice it to say to D.W. Griffith and Thomas Dixon, um were obsessed about miscegenation, and they did their best to propagandize against it. But I'm arguing that there's something significantly beyond uh, the erotic um, core of of this film. And let me give you some sense of that from uh, the film that was released in April, uh, just three months later, in 1915, by William Fox's studio, Uh, This film is called The Nigger And the nigger no longer exists (laughs) Well well, uh, As a film uh, um, But I found the remnants of the nigger In uh, the library of In the library of congress Um in a dark men's room it was <laughs> not a pretty sight but anyway the uh, there in 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 birth of a nation there was no accounting for the appearance of mixed race peoples they were simply there And they were named after mules, mulattoes, which means they were freaks of nature, because everybody knows mules cannot reproduce themselves, all right? So they are unnatural, all right? So mulattoes are unnatural, and Birth of a Nation drew that out beautifully. They are too sexual, they are highly eroticized, they are incapable of controlling themselves, and they are power hungry, all right? So the nigger comes around three months later, uh, produced by William Fox. And when I go to the Library of Congress, I discovered that there is a script for the nigger in the Library of Congress. And there are, you know, one or two or three uh, remnants of, uh, of other kinds of material there. So one of the things I found was an advertisement for The Nigger from the Motion Picture News, March 13, 1915. I discovered from that The Nigger had originally been a play that had been produced in 1910 on a New York stage at the New York Century Theater. It was a film written by Edward Sheldon, who was a southerner and directed by Edgar Lewis and it starred William Farnham, uh, who was described as the $100,000 face. Four elements of the advertisement provide some clue to the marketing strategy for the film. The largest and boldest lettering was devoted to William Farnham and only slightly smaller, the title of the film, The Nigger, and Fox Film Corporation. Secondly, Farnham's portrait, photo is inset in the upper right corner and thirdly in the background are two drawn figures on the left a white male clothed in a classical Athenian Clinton robe holding a sword and standing on a white globe and on the right a half naked black male, his wrists in chains standing on a black globe finally the advertisement included dialogue presumably from the film Uh, and I quote it here Phil says um, he asks are you trying to tell me with a straight face Cliff that my grandmother was a nigger unquote and Cliff responds quote what I'm telling you is not only that your grandmother was a nigger but that you're a nigger too (laughs) now you've got it square between the eyes end of quote the advertisement is an amazing collage of manipulation and the imaginary. There is almost, most obviously, there is most obviously a product recognition strategy represented by the emphasis given to the producing studio, the star, and the term "nigger." And I go on to describe and deconstruct the uh, that piece of advertising even more so. The "nigger" was about a. Gu- a man who had just been elected governor and he was being opportuned by bootleggers in the city in the state to uh, uh, sign a bill which would uh, erase prohibition and he was against it and as long his cousin comes to him and presents him with blackmail His cousin has discovered a letter written by the governor's grandmother. Uh, The governor's grandmother was a slave woman, um, indicating her race and his progeny. And um, he's going to release it unless the governor signs this legislation, uh, which will allow the bootleggers to uh, once again market their product uh, uh, freely. The governor refuses, Uh, the governor is affianced, he's affianced to a white woman, he tells her that he is uh, mixed race, he resigns the governorship, and at the end of the film he moves up north uh, to help his people. (laughs) So, there we go. So... And that's the kindest portrait of a mixed-race person in American films in this era. Let me describe some of the others. The next year, 1916, Selig Polyscope released at Piney Ridge in which another race-mistaken mulatto marauds through white society. He impregnates one woman in Bezos' bank funds shifts the blame for both deeds to a rival adding the final insult that his rival is of mixed blood the mulatto is eventually killed by a distraught father and while dying is told that his mother was black in Putinhead Wilson the same year Lasky Features presented an adaptation of the novel by Frank Mayo here a quadroon baby is switched by his mulatto mother with a white child having the same patrician father Later, the quadroon murders his uncle and tries to blame his half-brother for the deed. His original identity is revealed by fingerprint evidence and he is sent to prison. In Bar Sinister, 1917, Edgar Lewis Productions exhibited its first film. Lewis, the director of The Nigger, now tells the story of a mulatta who kidnaps the child of a man whose cruelty had caused the death of her husband. She raises the child as their own daughter, but eventually confesses the truth. And this is the only other film which departed from uh, the stock characterization of the mulatto. In the Renaissance as Charleroi, uh, 1970 Broadway star features, 1917 Broadway star features, a wealthy aristocrat destroys the romantic liaison between an octoroon and a white man. Again that year in sold at auction Balboa Amusement Producing Company a white child condemned to servitude is mischievously identified by her custodian as a mulatta in order to halt a marriage to a young reporter. She is then surrendered to a prostitution ring paradoxically auctioned to the father who abandoned her years before and only saved from incest by the intervention of her fiancé. Broken Ties, Free and Equal, A Woman of Impulse, on and on and on. These films were produced year after year after year, uh, almost all of them without exception. And I try to indicate the exceptions. um, uh, Portraying the mulatto as not a tragic figure, but as a corrupt, degraded human being from whom one can only expect enormous violence um, etc. So the argument I make in this part of uh, this chapter is that blacks were being targeted but some blacks were being targeted in specific ways and the specificity of the targeting had to do with their prominence as significant figures in Uh, the articulation of black resistance in the uh, first two decades of the 20th century consequently it follows that when black resistance in American cinema begins to emerge from 1910 on that one of the Strategies. one of the tasks taken on by black filmmakers is to retrieve uh, the black middle class. And in that retrieval, the argument I'm making here is that of the two major independent black film uh, studios, uh, on the one hand, the Lincoln uh, motion pictures uh, produced by... Uh, the Johnson Brothers, and on the other hand, Oscar Michaud's uh, film corporation, that of these two, Michaud takes the most radical approach to the attempt to retrieve uh, the mixed-race person uh, from the opprobrium produced by Hollywood. And if you haven't seen his 1919-1920 film, Uh, Within our gates um, Let me uh, invite you to see it The film was made and released in 1920 1919-1920 And uh, disappeared for 70 years A copy of the film was found in the early 90s, I believe it was, in the film archives in Madrid, Espana. The film was now called La Negra, the black woman, and um, it was brought, uh, a copy of it was brought back to the United States, the Library of Congress, or the, and uh, they went underwent the translation of now the Spanish intertitles into English Um, they got some of them obviously right didn't get some of them right Um, but in fact this film is the only film that I have become aware of that reproduces lynching alright it's the only independent black film which displays a lynching scene and when I first um of, this, of the silent era. And when I first saw this film, I was struck by how carefully Oscar Michaud had crafted his rejoinder to D.W. Griffith and um, Thomas Dixon, uh, the novelist who produced uh, The Klansman and The Leopard Spots, which Griffiths transformed into The Birth of a Nation. And I called my first attempt to describe within our gates Oscar Michaud lynches the mammy. And I meant that in the sense that Michaud had taken the mammy of Griffith and the postbellum south, that invention, that fiction, who was who was used to displace all those young black women um, in the plantation houses who had been raped or seduced or what have you. The women who, for a large measure, uh, had become the source of the half-million mulattoes registered in the 1860 census. The Mammy in the post-Civil War period had been invented to take the place of those women to in effect assure all of us that there was never a black woman attractive enough to implicate white males in the production of mixed race peoples if white males weren't responsible weren't the Uh, The leads in these uh, in the production by black women of mixed race children then there was another account and that account was the Jezebel, the black women uh, were uh, exotic and highly sexualized and kept seducing uh, young white males on plantations and things like that but in any case, the Mammy sort of forfeited any need to explain uh, the appearance of, uh, of this mixed race group. And so Griffith has employed, as most filmmakers in that earlier period, had employed white actresses to perform the role of Mammy. Michelle takes this woman and this configuration, this icon, and transforms her back into that of a human being. He does that in a series of gestures, which are cinematic gestures, which are remarkable. In the lynching scene, the mob, the white mob, which intends to lynch the woman, her husband, and their young son, the white mob begins to grab at this woman's clothes and tear her blouse off. And she falls to the ground, now only clothed in a halter on the top. A moment before, before they had captured her, she is in the forest, her hair undone, and she's reading the Bible. And she's saying these extraordinary words, am I not a human being? And Michelle has framed the film by giving her a portraiture, a close up. And so he re eroticizes the mammy, and then he allows us the imaginary lynching of this woman. She, like her husband, fight to save their young son, and in the chaos that they produce in the mob, the young son uh, escapes shot at, pretends to die and when the mob goes back to the lynching of his parents he jumps up runs a few steps and jumps onto a horse and rides away (laughs) rides away, but in any case uh, but the parents are successfully lynched and their bodies uh, burn their adopted child is a mulatta and Within Our Gates, the La Negra of Within Our Gates uh, concerns this woman's story. So what I'm saying is that Michelle, like the Lincoln Motion Pictures Group, meticulously tried to construct a response to the construction of mixed-race people as freaks uh, by the film industry. And the construction of mixed-race people by the film industry is a reflection of the film industry being controlled and dominated by an interest, a strata, which was threatened by what they saw as the vanguard of a black movement, that of mixed-race people, the Du Boises, the Mary Terrell churches, and so on and so forth. So what I'm trying to do in in this study is to say that race is not always the same, that it changes, that there are realities of economic and social and cultural force which transform a regime which is constantly in the process of being degraded. Nowadays we've seen uh, the extraordinary mercuriality of, uh, a mercurialness of, of race, where Arabs have been suddenly rediscovered as the primordial uh, blacks. Uh, and even for a little while, they toyed with doing something with the French. Right? Right? Uh, and you could get a sense of how powerful and sinister the capacity to reinvent, in cultural terms, whole peoples, right? When Congress decided there could be no French fries in its cafeteria, uh, that they had to be freedom fries, because the French are, by their very nature, uh, inconstant, uh, cowards, etc. And how that was achieved in three or four weeks is just a a cultural marvel, a cultural marvel. So um, that gives you a glimpse into some of the work that I'm doing, and I'll answer any questions that um, you might have.
1: This this immense process that you've been documenting and discussing this immense construction and reconstruction of racism and white supremacy and its penetration into every part of our society and our lives, and all that process has now reached the present. And I want to just, I, guess, I hope this isn't shifting the subject, but it seems that we are now in a moment, this country, the world is now in a moment, as you have argued to, of not only resurgent empire, but also of American decline. It seems that we're at the end of America in some sense. If one thinks about emerging Asia and if one thinks about re-emerging Islam and the sort of uh, analogy of American power to Israeli powers and ever more explicit settler power and a uh, the Conqu- effort to be a conquering power. So I, w- I wonder if you would uh, feel okay about talking about that. The, that is to say, the racism of the present, the empire in decline, the reframing now of white supremacy and uh, reconstruction through Islamophobia and other factors, and also obviously through anti-black and anti-Latino factors. That's my question. Thank you.
2: Last night, many of you saw a film called uh, Devil in a Blue Dress, and there was a rather extra- substantial discussion about mouse in in, after the film. And um, the terrible Pigeon said to me, whispered to me, because he refuses to speak in public. Um, the terrible Pigeon whispered to me, that he's a metaphor He says, he's a metaphor <laughs> <laughs> Right? And I thought about the terrible Pigeon's insights And And uh, I've been teaching a film for several years And uh, you know, Every time you see the film, you see something New in the film There were four Violent black males In that film Devil in the blue dress uh, I don't have time for those who didn't see the film this time But maybe you've seen it before Two of them were mercenaries water The watermelon-headed brother Who both smoked the zapatas And Joppy The barman who had such pride in his marble top The other two violent men were Frank Green The brother of Daphne And Maus and as Otis indicated last night, in the novel, there's a, total const- there's a total construction for Frank Green. He is the brother or half-brother of a sister who has been sexually abused by her father. His violence is protective of her. All right. So it has, a, it has a germination, it has an explication. Mouse is the only one for whom there is no explanation for his violence. So the terrible Pigeon is probably right that even in Mosley's construction, Mouse was more metaphor than character. Stretching that, Mouse is violence is married to. As part of the pillar of a complement to A condition of possibility for The achievement, fulfillment, realization Of the black petty bourgeois desire of easy Rawlings Without mouse, no house All right? Without mouse, no neighborhood All right? And the genius of the black petty bourgeoisie is to be able to administer and manage that violence. And when Easy asks Odell at the end of the film, What do you do when you have a friend that does bad, really bad things? (laughs) Right? Can you still be a friend? And Odell says, All you got is your friends (laughs) All you got is your friends Iraq is mouse right. Iraq is America's mouse America's American radicalism's mouse Remember The first Powerful confrontation with race in the 19th century that was positive was the Civil War. All right? That is, we know that one thing was happening in the 1850s and perhaps the 1840s, but certainly the 1850s, the abolitionists were winning the propaganda war. The abolitionists outproduced the pro slavery. Faction in terms of pamphlets, even in terms of cultural materials like plays and novels, etc., etc. The most what produced and reproduced play of the 19th century was Uncle Tom's Cabin, isn't it? right? So the abolition won that contest outright. The realization of the abolitionist desire came with the admission of violence. All right. That is the war That is 190,000 200,000 Primarily slaves Serving in the Union Army And the Union Navy Just think about that Think about that Between 1863 and 1865 Nearly 200,000 mostly slaves, trained and fought and turned the Union defeat into victory. Accounting for 18-19% of the casualties of the Union Army. All right, That was the abolitionists' mouse. So we come to the 20th century, we come to the post-World War II period. We come to a moment when, in fact, like this moment, there was not a drift, but in fact, a you know, almost a tidal wave towards the right, right? in the direction of, uh, of this extraordinary, repressive society. And the thing which stopped it didn't halt it but the thing which slowed it down and began to reverse it uh, was in effect this violent confrontation called the Civil Rights Movement alright that is people who said uh, to themselves I don't want to do this anymore kill me (laughs) <laughs> I don't. Want, I'm not going to do that anymore. All right. And so, folks took them literally and killed some of them. I said, you know, you know. If you don't want to do it, that's okay. Right. We'll find somebody else to do it. All right. So, understand my understanding of your question, Howard. Is at this moment How does it happen? It happens As I was suggesting uh, With some sort of Violent opposition And at the moment The violent opposition to America Right? Is in large measure Outside the United States But we know That this is The kind of Adventure Which seems to be boundless In the end the American Military establishment is going to have a simple A simple resolution They can determine that they won the war And leave no matter what the realities on the ground are Uh, They can proceed to genocide And have a uh, A resolution Or they can fight for another 15 years Alright They told Reagan They told Reagan We will only go to war If we can win in two weeks Because you can't guarantee American public support For any longer period than that That's what they told him Alright And we've seen the de- deterioration Of this policy uh, Already so I think we can't, we can't avoid, we can't avoid that reality. There are going to be, we can't, can't afford to continue to lie to ourselves. Right? That we can move out of this process, by process. Right? The resources are arranged against us. Right? Many of us are involved in the anti-war movement. And... Uh, it was 8 months before the American media reported on it A year and a half before the prominent American media said We're sorry we paid no attention to you That was wrong, you were news Alright um, So that, that gives you some sense of kind of stuff So we have to win the propaganda war that's a given. And some of you were talking this afternoon about the ways in which that can be done. But I'm afraid uh, that easy victory we thought was possible through a Democratic Party uh, takeover of the state. There's not enough in the Democratic Party, as far as I'm concerned, to warrant that kind of faith. All right? Uh, I hope that those of you who feel more optimistic are right, you know? I hope that you're right. Um, But I've, you know, seen a lot of bad things in my time. And I don't want to, you know, I just don't want to close my eyes and say, you know, they're not real an alternative America that's more real. I don't know about that.